0: Today's program is brought to you by Cane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit Cane5.com. I'm Erica Wides, host
1: of Let's Get Real, the cooking show about finding, preparing, and eating food. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org
0: for thousands more. Good morning and welcome to Inside School Food, where professionals working in the trenches inside school food talk issues big and small. And solutions that really work. I am Laura Stanley. Uh, if you were listening last week, you may remember that I promised some information dense episodes this summer in the run up to uh, Child Nutrition Reauthorization 2015. Today's conversation with Rick Goff will be the first. Um, Rick is Executive Director of the Office of Child Nutrition for the West Virginia Department of Education. I am really excited to have him on the show today. And I will be introducing him shortly. Um, But first, uh, a reflection on CNR proceedings as I see them so far. Um, It's only early June, but already I'm finding it difficult to keep up with what's going on, what with all the moving parts of this huge bill. And, And I'm only following the parts that have to do with school food. It's only going to get harder as our legislators race to the finish. Uh, the current child uh, nutrition bill from 2010 is set to expire on September 30th. So it's really around the corner. Um, so, so bear with me for just a sec as I step on a soapbox here. Um, the, the mainstream press has so far... Tended to focus on areas where rival political factions very publicly disagree. You know, the cupcake wars and the like. But so much of the really impactful news, in my view, will be happening in areas that are not so much contested as they are complicated. Um, Despite everything we hear about the very divisive arguments over the content of nutrition regulations. There, there is tons of bipartisan support for good stuff that our children need. And in what our legislators should be debating this summer, constructively, let's hope, is how to more efficiently advance the goals of child nutrition policy and practice. So, So their job, if they're doing it right, will be to truly serve food justice through fair and careful allocation of what is still limited funding. So it was with this idea in my in mind that I invited Rick onto the show today. Um, he is all about serving children well by introducing innovative efficiencies into the system. Um, I first got to know him or about him when I watched him testify before the Senate Agriculture Committee on May seventh um, and uh, that's a committee is chaired by Republican Senator. Pat Roberts of Kansas, um, and Senator Debbie Stabenow of Michigan is the ranking minority member. This was the committee's first hearing related to CNR and the first uh, Senate committee meeting of any kind that I had ever watched from start to finish. So I was learning a lot about not just the content under discussion. I, I also observed with interest how committee members Conduct them, conducted themselves you know when they were there, there there's actually a lot of coming and going during these things and and some off-topic grandstanding um but on the whole i i thought the members were listening carefully and asking really good questions rick i hope they got as much out of your testimony as i did um i'm really pleased to have you on the show here to um share some of it with us today
2: well, thank you so much. It's great to be on. Yeah, I appreciate it.
0: Um, so I, I'm going to let you do all the talking in a minute. But first, I have to tell listeners a little bit about you. Um, Rick Goff has served 26 years with the West Virginia Department of Education. Um, in 2005, he assumed his current role as the Executive Director of the West. Virginia um, Office of Child Nutrition, uh, where he is responsible for the oversight of program staff and management of federal. And state funds. Um, he oversees development of policies and program administration related to all child nutrition programs in and out of school. Um, Rick holds an MBA from the West Virginia College of Graduate Studies. And as you, you will hear, you know, really runs his shop with the kind of big picture command perspective one expects from a private sector CEO. So the the hearing on May 7th had a twofold purpose. Uh, The committee wanted to hear about student acceptance of school meals under the meal. Pattern mandated in the CNR of 2010. Um, witnesses were also called to testify about the widespread and very expensive misassignment of free/reduced status to students who don't qualify for it. And and Rick, you spoke compellingly on both topics, so I'd like us to get to both today. Um, Let's start with West Virginia's strong participation in the USDA compliant school meals program. Uh, it, it's clear that you were invited to testify because your state is doing so well under Healthy Hunger-Free Kids Act 2010, and by that I mean the whole state. Um so like I guess my first question is what does participation look like now across West Virginia?
2: Well, as far as the public school sector, our participation is the highest it's ever been. Uh, We have more children eating than than any other time before in the the history of the program. Um, We've made some fundamental changes in the way we offer and feed children here in West Virginia, in particular breakfast, Mm -hmm. our breakfast participation. in, in a lot of districts is surpassing our lunch participation for the first time ever. And uh, we're very proud of that. But I think right now our breakfast participation averages 50 to 60 percent and our lunch is around 70 percent.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that is very high. So this progress didn't happen overnight. Um, and you made that clear in your testimony. When When did West Virginia commit to making change in its school meals programming?
2: Well, it was probably the the commitment started back in two thousand and seven. Um, we had a nutrition advisory council that had met to to revise our standards for school nutrition, our state standards and About that time, uh, we had a board member, Barbara Fish, who was asked to serve on the Institute of medicine's uh, committee that was taking a look at these nutrition standards so she was one of the thirteen individuals selected. She was representing. The sector of uh, state board super, uh, members. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. So Barbara Fish was asked to be on this uh, this committee of the IOM, and I can remember getting a call, driving down the road. She knew virtually nothing about uh, nutrition and what we were doing here in West Virginia. She was just excited to be asked, but she quickly became an expert on what we were doing. So. She had the inside track with the IOM, and we were currently meeting to revise our standards. And you know, I likened it to the, the planets aligning, the time was, uh, was perfect. We postponed our revision in anticipate, anticipation of the IOM standards being released. Once they were released... Uh, we incorporated all those standards into our policy uh, and issued and, and got the policy passed within nine months mm-hmm. of the IOM standards coming out. And you know, that's the, the cornerstone for what the Healthy Hunger-Free Kids Act is based on.
0: Right. So you were really an early adopter in that way. And, 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 and I think part of what you were you were facing at that time and that you're still facing in West Virginia is higher than average rates of poverty, hunger, and obesity. So I imagine that was a a strong motivator in getting an early start.
2: Yes, it was. You know, West Virginia typically ranks first in everything bad and last in everything good. Mm. Uh, And, you know, childhood obesity was so high here in West Virginia, as as was adult obesity. And the the other uh, health concerns associated with uh, being overweight. So um, we had to do something. We could no longer uh, turn a blind eye uh, at our school systems. You know, schools, we felt when we implemented those standards, we felt that schools, since children were in our care for seven or eight hours a day, they were held to a different higher standard Mm -hmm. when it came to providing a safe and healthy And healthy environment is as important as a safe environment.
0: Right. So 2007, the standards are released. You have to make some first steps. You know, what did you do first and what followed? How did it go?
2: (laughs) Yeah, I can remember. Um, It it took literally an act of congress to get that policy passed i mean everyone chimed in uh it seems like everyone's an expert when it comes to food i think that's because we all eat mm. uh and everyone had a concern and we we put it we put the policy out for public comment and we got more comments on that one individual policy i think than we had received uh in any other um <clears throat> but anyway i can remember the the board meeting when it passed and it was adopted, I came down and I sat at my chair and I just had this great sigh of relief because it was months and months of, of of writing and developing standards and then then to have to do the political side to get it passed,
1: mm-hmm.
2: and then I realized, uh oh, yeah, now the hard work starts. We have to actually implement this this document, this these policies, and and therein lies lies the uh, the 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 big thing. So I, I took about five minutes to catch my breath, yeah. And then I got on my computer and started typing, and I, I, I titled the page "Implementation of Policy 4321.1 Standards for School Nutrition," and I just uh, bam, bam, bam had uh, step one, step two, step three, what we're going to do to implement these. Uh, and take us to the next level as far as the standards, because they were so progressive. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, kn- I knew we would have uh, some challenges at every turn. And right, the and the things and that you... I anticipated being a mm-hmm. challenge, not weren't necessarily in the things that I overlooked. So it was a learning. Uh, a learning lesson.
0: Yeah, you you talked about and, and and you were very frank in the testimony, and you said this was a hard process, and we got some black eyes along the way. You know? <laughs>
1: to, yes,
2: to tell
0: me did. a little bit about that.
2: Well, uh, you know, we had we had members of the legislature writing us letters, uh, you know, sort of telling us not to get involved in this particular issue or that particular issue, and I can remember from the beginning, we, you know, our our standard. For for doing these uh, changes was we're going to do what's in the child's best interest. At the end of the day, uh, that's going to be our our yardstick and our our guiding principle. And and we did that. And we tried to make these policies in a vacuum without um, any um, impact from parents or industry or the legislature. And we tried to do what was right in the in, in the child's best interest. But. Yeah, the first thing I had to do was tra- um, train my staff because the policy development didn't encompass all 20 members of my staff, so they weren't involved in it. So, mm-hmm. you know, we had to train our staff. We had to train the food service directors. We we met with superintendents. We had conferences where we uh, we tried to get in front of every principal meeting at the start-up of school to roll the policy out and let them know why, <clears throat> why we were making these changes and uh, the uh, – the sweat equity behind what we were doing. We Mm -hmm. met and went to PTA meetings, and uh, we had workshops. We even met with the finance people at the uh, county level.
0: Oh, comprehensive Uh, outreach. And and, and when you say changes, you were doing some really radical stuff. Like, all of a sudden, you were pulling out a la carte, right? And, like, what were some of the other things that that happened, you know, almost right away?
2: Well, we... um, yeah we adopted those uh standards that uh, the i o m recommended as far as competitive food so that was the first thing and getting rid of the sugary uh sugar sweetened beverages and um that the uh we we even went after fundraising you know we not mm-hmm. only went uh at the vending machines and and the school stores but we looked at fundraising and um and things and the the school uh uh, groups and and parents bringing food into the school system. You know, we had just come off of implementing HACCP for food safety, and we had the cafeterias in all of our schools were locked down tight as can be as far as health and safety and yet we when we were exiting the cafeteria doors we were turning a blind eye to what was coming into the school environment so we were uh, the first ones i think to attack the total school environment and that's what the healthy hunger free kids act does mm-hmm. and i think that's the the right thing to do you can't you can't just have a healthy room in a building the whole building has to be healthy and safe yeah. and yeah. Uh, so we looked at that. That was one of the major challenges, was trying to regulate what was coming into the school system from outside sources. You know, we discontinued uh, fast food deliveries. We've, we've uh, always had a la carte when, when children come to our schools, mm-hmm. in our cafeterias, they get a unitized meal that meets the meal pattern by USDA and we don't sell a la carte items.
0: Right. But it was a, a pretty drastic clean sweep and it also included the introduction of uh, more whole grain or whole grain rich products. Did you do that right away or was that a phase in?
2: Well, I think we just bit the bullet and, you know, we, we implemented it. I'm a, I'm a huge proponent that if you have a, a great provision or a rule that's definitely in the child's best interest, why not go ahead and bite the bullet and implement it? You know, rip the Band-Aid off, so to speak. <laughs> uh, and that's what we did, and uh, we did it with the milk. You know, we went to, to 1% in skim milk. We mm-hmm. still maintained our support of the chocolate, but mm-hmm. we went to reduce the fat content. We had more fresh fruits and vegetables. Uh, we did the whole grain-rich um, provision early on. Um, and, you know, we had some challenges. We, work, we have uh, co-ops here in West Virginia uh, where we have our counties get together and they form cooperative purchasing groups. So it was easier to get the product from that perspective. Mm-hmm. And I was at a, a function just last week, and uh, it was the National Summer Food Service Program kickoff. It was, we were fortunate to have um, Undersecretary Kevin Concanon come to West Virginia. And the meal that day was spaghetti. And it was made with whole grain-rich pasta. Mm -hmm. And the food service director looked at me and I said, "Um, I noticed you didn't ask for the waiver. And she said to me, she looked at me right now, and she goes, I can't see taking a step backwards. So, and that's the attitude we have here in West Virginia. Yeah. That's why it's been so successful.
0: Yeah. So let, let's let's talk about that, because at the hearing, um, Republican Senator Hoven challenged you on the subject of whole grain acceptance in West Virginia schools, because you, you asserted that, you know, it's come a long way. The kids, you know, are now asking, enjoying, uh, asking for and enjoying what they call the brown bread. But he persisted in being really skeptical when you um, about it, and and he pushed you on the subject of, of waivers. So, so you know, for the record, have any West Virginia districts applied for waivers on the whole grain
2: requirement? You know, we 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 implemented that back in '08, uh, and we worked. We actually had a conference where we brought vendors in. Um, so we included everyone in our grassroots effort to get this policy out there, um, and the product became available. You know, there was some challenges when you go from white bread to, to wheat bread, and mm-hmm. kids aren't used to it. But, you know, it, it's now it's not even a thing they discuss. It's an acceptable thing. It's like it's getting up and going to school. You know you have to do it. You know that yeah. uh, the whole grain-rich bread is going to be a part of the school meal, so is the pasta. Uh, and they love it you know we had a we had a cook off here a year or so ago where we picked the they came in and they it was a bake off so to speak with the cooks and they baked the we selected the best uh whole wheat roll um and they're it's delicious but you know i think we've had twenty seven counties districts out of 55, mm-hmm. that when the waiver became available, they asked for it, but only in regard to the PASTA. Only the PASTA. And it had to deal with having a, a vendor or a, a source to obtain the PASTA, number one. Uh, and I, from what I understand, it had to deal with the the ability for the product to maintain its consistency and and stay together under the cooking. Right. But and
0: and you you made that clear during during the hearing, but he he kept pushing you saying, "Are you sure that the kids are okay with that whole grain pasta or rather a <laughs> pizza crust?" And 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 I don't know if you noticed this, but he, um, Senator Hoven also, you know, used the terms 100% whole grain and 100% whole grain rich interchangeably, which was very confusing. You know, the rule calls for 100% whole grain rich, which is completely different from 100% whole grain. And that whole right. grain rich allows for up to 50% refined flour. Correct. So I have to say for the senator's benefit and for everyone else's, um, I'm going to put a link on today's show page to a helpful infographic about what whole grain rich is um and that's from the union of concerned scientists so so look for that um so um speaking of black eyes can can can, can we talk about jamie oliver
2: I surely can. Okay. Uh, what do you want to know about it? Well, I mean, I don't
0: think I need to remind listeners of his descent on the town of Huntington, West Virginia. Um, what was it in 2010? Um, it made for some pretty gripping reality TV, if that's your cup of tea. But, but you know, did his show reflect reality at the time?
2: no. Not at all. Um, you know, when when we were approached by his production, that production company, we were excited. You know, we had a big name chef that was going to come in, and and actually, we thought sincerely help a county or a city that we felt was unfairly designated as the most unhealthy city, in I think in the universe. Uh, we, but rather, like the, you know, I listened to the mayor of Huntington speak this weekend at a, a Try This conference. And, you know, rather than try to challenge the statistic, they decided decided to make a, a, a fundamental change. And now, I think last year, that city of Huntington had 19 5K runs. It's now referred to as Runnington instead of Huntington. Wow. Uh, and there's more uh, farmers markets, and there's a lot of great. Um, health and wellness things happening in Huntington as a result of that, but as far as Jamie Oliver and the production comes and goes um, and I told you this when we spoke mm-hmm. um, it was really there was an opportunity there to do the right thing, and most people would do the right thing um, and if i 'm sincerely concerned about you, Laura mm-hmm. and you have an issue, whether it be obesity or and I can help. Right? I'm mm-hmm. going to come and I'm going to extend my assistance and I'm going to help you. I'm not going to come in, berate you, tear you down, make fun of you, uh, capitalize on, on your deficiency or whatever it is, and then be the savior. That's not the way it works. Mm-hmm. You know, there was no sincerity in that at all. And, um, and and it was unfortunate that it, it got the press that it did, but that's the whole idea was to have a, a program. And I can remember some of the stunts that they uh, put on TV. You know, we had we expected to come to West Virginia and find schools with candy bars and soda machines, and, and there was none of that. And we had uh, fresh fruit and salad bars in our schools. They had one at that particular school they did the filming, Um but you didn't see it. It they didn't hit it on the, the, the T V program. Uh and they, they didn't see that. So I think their fallback position on what the program was mainly about was processed foods and chocolate milk.
1: hmm
2: In essence. I, I can remember uh addressing those two things rather than you know, the nutritional quality of the meal. And, you know, as a result of, of, of that we did some things uh here at the state agency level, we put to, together a cooking from scratch course, and we took it and we trained the entire state of West Virginia. And, uh, so, so you can have something unfortunate like that happen, and you just t- try to take lemons and make lemonade, and I think that's what we've done, but it was not a fair depiction of what was going on in Cabell County.
0: Right. Well, I, I thank you for sharing that, Rick. I've been wanting to talk about Jamie on this show for a long time, so you just got the ball rolling. Uh, so we're we're going to go to station break now, and when we come back, let's talk about the other piece of your testimony about how West Virginia has managed to slash costly misassignments of free/reduced status to students who don't qualify. Um, this is Inside School Food. Today's guest is Rick Goff of the West Virginia Office of Child Nutrition.
1: And today's break song is called Anxieties by The Landing. We'll be right back.
2: Chris Howell from Kane Vineyard and Winery, calling in from Spring Mountain above the Napa Valley. Thank you for listening to this show. In our industrial world of highly processed food and wine, we support the values of Heritage Radio Network. All of us at Cain encourage you to seek out individuality and beauty in everything you eat and drink. To learn more about us, go to kane 5com
0: Welcome back to Inside School Food. Today we're speaking with Rick Goff, Executive Director of the West Virginia Office of Child Nutrition, who was one of six witnesses who appeared before the Senate Agriculture Committee on May the 7th. Um, Rick, you appeared um, in the hearing's second panel, and the the first was comprised of just two witnesses who spoke about the enormous error rate in the assignment of free-reduced meal status to students Who don't qualify. In 2009, improper lunch payments cost taxpayers some $1.45 billion, which amounted to more than 16% of national school lunch program outlays. That's just huge. Um, and more recently, the FNS has reported that improper payments are still over 10%. It, it, it's a really serious problem. Um, but you testify that in West Virginia, um, it's under control. And when I asked you last week if I could say on the air that West Virginia system for assigning and certifying students pay status is among the most efficient, accurate, and fair in the nation. You said sure, so tell us why this is so.
2: Well, we're unique in West Virginia. I think those problems that uh, Mr. Lord that was on the panel before me Mm -hmm. spoke to, um, it's not a result of the program or the way the program is set up to be administered. I think it's a result of the systems we have in place at the local and state agency levels. Um, And what we did here in West Virginia is uh, we took a different approach. We have um, a state that 's comprised of fifty five school districts um, Some years ago, we looked at implementing uh, i 'm a huge believer in uh continuity and consistency. We wanted to put one system in place statewide um, that would uh, account for the counting and claiming um, and and use it and it and what happened was just Unbelievable! what we've been able to do here as a result of going down that road. But we had about 10, 10 different software companies that we interviewed. And about five or six companies in, we'd set up this uh, this panel comprised of food service directors, treasurers, um, technical technology experts. And you know, we were like looking at the products that they had available. We were going to purchase an off-the-shelf program to put in our school systems, and we're going to fund it by pooling together all of our state matching funds, and, and pay for this thing, and develop consistency. And about six vendors in, I realized, I looked at my friend Daniel, and I said, you know, there are things about each company that's previewed their product to us that that I liked. Mm-hmm. So, at the end of the day, when, when the exercise was over, it actually took several months, we wrote this uh, request for this uh, multimillion-dollar uh, program, and we just sort of did a Frankenstein approach. We picked and chose what we liked from each of the companies and put together a system and, and a company out of Houston, Texas, bid on it and won the bid, and we partnered with them, and they sort of developed um, this this product for us, um, and we're unique in that we can do some things as a result of that. We um, Our direct certification match, uh, every week we get a list of children whose families qualify for SNAP or TANF benefits, or Mm -hmm. if they're um, foster children. Mm -hmm. And we take that list from DHHR, uh, Human Resources, and we cross-reference it with our uh, enrolled children. And if the match is made, then they automatically qualify for free meals. So the match is made at the state agency level and not at the local or school or district level.
0: That's really an important point. So districts do not have to concern themselves with this. The state takes care of
2: it. We do the match at the state level and push the data down to the school. Mm -hmm. And one thing that I wanted to do that for is, you know, needy families tend to be transient. They move around a lot, and they would move from, like, county A to county B. And when you move within the state, they would lose their benefits, and their benefits would be interrupted. So what was happening is they move a lot. They, they typically don't have own homes. They typically rent. And when the, the county that was receiving them, the new school, there was no application on file, so they'd have to reapply. And the uh, they would incur a bill because you had to feed them while they were in the process of reapplying for meals. So they would generate a lunch bill that the family typically not accustomed to paying. So by going to this statewide system, uh, when a child transfers, the whether it's the direct certification designation or the application uh, that's imaged into the software, it transfers with the child, like the child's name, uh... or their social number so the receiving school the first day of school if they were free in the previous county they're free that day and there is no interruption to meal benefits uh... for those children that move from county to county within the state and yeah that's good for the child it's good um, they get free meals. The family does. Their their benefits are not interrupted. Mm-hmm. The, the, it's good for the school system because instead of getting the paid reimbursement, they're getting the free rate of reimbursement, mm-hmm. and it's good for the treasurer because there's no uncollected student lunch debt that's created. So it was a win win for everyone. And uh, and
0: and uh, you know, less of an issue with um, free reduce assignments that are not uh, appropriate.
2: So right, you, we uh, we don't collect. Um, cash on the line mm-hmm. because that overtly identifies the child. We have a system that the it's uh, it's automated, it's computerized at the point of sale like most. <clears throat> we don't collect uh, lunch money. We believe that the, the responsibility of paying for a child's meal lies with the parents and should not be placed on the child. Uh, when a child comes to school they just make a decision whether they want to eat or not that day. It's not predicated on whether they have cash or money in their pocket. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, our system, we typically bill at the end of the month. We bill the parents um, for the lunch bill. Right. We uh, we don't overtly identify kids at the point of sale because, number one, we're not collecting cash. And the system, um, the computer operators don't even know the child's status, whether they're free, reduced, or paid. That's how covert it is. Right, right. Um, we either um, have cards where we swipe uh, or we have a coded ID, every child has a uh, uh, a student ID number uh, for that particular school. Uh, we have in 27 of our counties, I think, uh, the last I checked, we have biometric scanning, where the student's ID is coded onto a fingerprint image. It's not their fingerprint, it's an image. Mm-hmm. And they just come up to the, the point of sale and put their, finger, uh, their index finger on a, a, a pad that reads and logs the meal for federal reimbursement. That goes from the point of sale to the county and to the state. And our uh, our coordinators here can tell you whether at the state agency level whether a child had breakfast this morning at any school in West Virginia.
0: Right. I think this is what I meant when I said earlier that you really – Think like a CEO. Uh, this, this <laughs> you know, this top-down approach to efficiency and containment of costs and waste is is really um, unusual. D- do you feel that this system you've developed in West Virginia is replicable in other states?
2: Absolutely. You know, um, I'm not the smartest guy in the world. Um, I've been really lucky, and I work with a lot of smart people. The uh, the system needs to me. It's it's the system that should exist. If you want to eradicate fraud or at least eliminate it mm-hmm. to a small level and help reduce it and ensure that the, the benefits are issued properly, there, this is the only system to have. Why, why, I can't, why state? And, you know, the other option is let schools buy their own software.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: You know, and then you have five or six hundred different software applications uh, out there that you need to learn when you go out to monitor the program. Now, when the healthy hunger free kids act passed it took the monitoring requirement from a five-year cycle to a three-year cycle mm-hmm. and a lot of state directors struggled with that uh... because it was going to be more labor-intensive uh... and then our program was was hitting our schools and what we found is that we can look at direct certification we can monitor verification we can monitor free and reduced eligibility look at applications approve those we can do almost half of the required monitoring from our offices here in Charleston before we even enter the field so if you have continuity in a system that's statewide my staff they don't have to go in and spend so much of their time number one monitoring the software to make sure it's counting and claiming the meals correctly because we've purchased the software we're the cognizant owner of that Mm -hmm. and um, so all we need to focus on is, is the monitoring,
1: mm-hmm.
2: um, and we only have to monitor one system. Well, we f- clearly this is why you were
0: invited to, to talk about it um, in, in the, um, at the hearing. Um, Rick, can we talk about where um, your early adoption of community eligibility fits in in um, getting you know, food to kids who need it um, and keeping the system fair and efficient?
2: Sure. Um, well, when community eligibility became an option, you know, I've, I've spent 25 years doing this. I can remember two or three years into my career doing fiscal notes for a member of the legislature on what it would cost to feed their district free. So the notion of, of all kids eating free at school is not anything new. The question was how could we fund it? Uh, when I heard the notion of community eligibility, you know, the school or the community qualifying as a free for free meals rather than the student qualifying. That whole concept of uh, the community or the school being free, I was intrigued by it. And I knew that they were going to pilot it. Um, and we offered, we wanted to do that. And the first year we weren't selected. Mm-hmm. And I was so upset. Um, <laughs> I was upset to the point I think I was angry. Uh, but we decided to do it anyway. We mm-hmm. thought it was such a worthy cause and we we felt that we wanted to see we didn't want to be behind behind on this initiative. We wanted to be ahead. We at least we weren't going to let the fact that we weren't selected as a pilot um uh, interfere with that because I think we knew we eventually would. So what we did in West Virginia, we piloted our own version of it called the uh um, Universal Free Meals Pilot in mm-hmm. West Virginia and um you know, we we said that for for that concept to work, you have to have um, maximum participation. You know, we knew that that our breakfast numbers were down, so we required that if they were going to be a pilot on our West Virginia universal free meals pilot, they had to realign their their meal service and made make the meal readily available to the student. You know, no longer could breakfast compete with the start of school, and uh, because for. for for that program to work, you serve as many meals as you can, mm-hmm. and uh, economies of scale kicks in, and the federal reimbursement and drawdown helps offset the cost of feeding the non-needy child. Right. Free. Yeah, yeah.
0: And so the, the breakfast was a win-win situation because it helped fund your meals programs all, all overall, um, and it also met the profound needs of your hungriest children.
2: Right. And. We were selected this the second year of the pilot, West Virginia was selected, and I think in part due to the fact that we we took the initiative to to go ahead and go forth with it. I think we selected eight or nine county districts. Um, So when we piloted it, we were ready for it. And I always say this, we didn't really pilot the initiative, we implemented it. Mm -hmm. Um, It's unlikely they take something away from you like that. (laughs) It's so important. You can give people things all day long and they're not going to complain, but if you take something from them, they're going to start screaming. So we knew that initiative was here to stay. And uh, right now, um, last year, we have community eligibility in West Virginia in 54% of all of our schools. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Over half our state is community eligible and um you know if you think about it um there again you go back to the kids are required to be in our care for 7 or 8 hours a day. Why aren't, why why do we segregate and separate the meal and charge parents for that? Uh and you can say well it's based on ability to pay and that's why we have the categories of free, reduced and paid. But you know we're not charging them to ride the bus. Mm -hmm. We're not charging them for instruction. We're not charging them for all these other uh, extras that are supposed to be part of the uh, public school education experience. So I think you're going to see a day when the meal service is treated just like uh, the rest of the the learning experience. I'll hold on to to that hope.
0: Yeah. You're not the only one to be saying it. That's an important idea. Um, And and speaking of, of acting proactively, um, I, I wanted to ask you about your more recent initiative called Feed to achieve, which I believe is the first of its kind in the, in the country. Can you tell us what it is?
2: Yes, it was a, um, started out a Senate bill, 663. It was, uh, uh, introduced by Senator John Unger, uh, Senate Majority Leader, and it really um, and it, it didn't have a fiscal note, was the good thing about it. We could do this without uh, costing the state uh, additional funding. It's based on capitalizing on the feeding programs that our office administers and that are already in place, but it's sort of like a two-sided coin. If I had to break feed to achieve down into two bullet points, Number one, the first thing it wanted to do was help eliminate and eradicate hunger. You know, we have these federal programs in place. West Virginia was feeding before feed to achieve about 29%, 30% of our kids' breakfast. Mm -hmm. Statewide, we're 60% needy. Now, why is there a 30% gap in needy children participating in breakfast? You can't tell me that 30% of needy children just aren't hungry in the morning because 70% of them are eating lunch. I mean, the rationale would be, the explanation is, well, they come to school and they're not hungry until lunch. And I Mm -hmm. knew that wasn't the case. Mm -hmm. So Feed to Achieve steps in and mandates a state law that breakfast has to be offered uh, at some other time during the school day. It has to be integrated into the school day. Uh, and it can't start uh, compete with the start-up of school. It can't compete with the bus arriving, the bell ringing, uh, the kids with the big backpacks on their back. Um, it has to make breakfast and lunch readily available and accessible by the child. So that's what it does. It realigns. And schools have to have, whether you're a, a grade school, middle school, or high school, you have to have an innovative breakfast strategy in place, approved mm-hmm. by our office, whether it's grab-and-go or in the classroom or Breakfast after first, yeah, uh, yeah. So that's taken our breakfast to the next level. The federal funds that has flown into West Virginia flooded the state as a result of that is unbelievable. We have Mason County feeding ninety percent of their kids breakfast on a daily basis. So, Whereas so in other words, fee, 30, fee to
0: achieve is um, USDA funded at this point.
2: Yes, it's, it just capitalizes on it. The other side of the coin is the second bullet point of fee to achieve. And this was Senator Unger's uh, idea. You know, I said 60% of our kids are needy. That means 40% statewide are not needy. And people confuse the not needy, the non-needy, uh, with wealthy. And they're by no means wealthy. It's not like we have 40% of our kids are uh, parents or doctors and lawyers. Well, in essence, what you have is that 40%, the majority of those children and those families are down around the, uh, the cutoff point for eligibility. It's mm-hmm. just they don't qualify. It's what we call the working poor. Yes. Working those yes. families that struggle to get by and Feed to Achieve is geared toward helping those families. It sets up a private-public partnership, uh, creates a Feed to Achieve fund that will accept donations uh, from the private sector, uh, from individuals, it's a charitable donation, it's tax deductible, uh, and people can give to help uh, feed children in West Virginia as part of these programs. So and that's
0: the important point here is that it is, it is indeed supplementing what's available to you from the USDA. And how long have you had Feed to Achieve in place?
2: This was the first year. Mm-hmm. Now, you can imagine with something that progressive and innovative the day that it passed, if you would have handed me a check for a million dollars, I, I wouldn't have known what to do with it. We had no infrastructure, no accounting system, no mm-hmm. – <laughs> so we had to start from scratch, and we're still trying to figure this out. Yeah. You know, we've we've implemented the breakfast uh, side of it. We've established the accounting uh, and worked with the, uh, the tax people to get guidance out on – you know, we had to see how it was a tax uh, – deductible charitable contribution. We had a lot to do. Uh, Right now, our focus is on, we have a a request out, we're going to try to engage a a marketing firm to get the word out uh, and make it a very popular um, um, concept that people, when you say feed to achieve, they know that that's uh, a, a program that enables you to donate, whether it's five dollars a paycheck or checking off a box on a tax return mm-hmm. to a, to allow part of your refund to go toward this cause or that cause, but uh, to help feed kids. And you can do it in your communities. You can earmark your contribution for your county. Uh, and that's the next step is to to bring in a grassroots local awareness. To want right. to right. achieve is
0: well, it's it's very creative, and um, I wish you luck with it. And maybe we should check in with you again in about a year to see how the, you know how you're progressing with this with this plan. Uh, it's very yeah. interesting. So, Rick, we we've gone over time, but I'm not at all sorry about that because there's a lot of important story coming out of West Virginia. I'm really grateful you could join us today to share it.
2: Thank you. It's my pleasure.
0: Uh, You have been listening to a conversation with uh, Rick Goff, who is Executive Director of the West Virginia Office of Child Nutrition. On today's show page on InsideSchoolFood.com, you'll find links to all the testimony given to the Senate Ag Committee on May 7th in print and on video if you want to sit through that. Um, It's quite interesting. Also links to resources from the West Virginia Office of Child Nutrition and a great article about Rick and his work from the Alliance for a Healthier Generation. And as promised, that whole grain rich 101 blog from the Union of Concerned Scientists um inside school food is also archived on heritageradionetwork.org our host station where you'll find a treasure trove of other podcasts about good food and the good food movement all of them including this one can be easily uploaded to your mobile device via itunes or stitcher so you know take us to the beach this summer i'm laura stanley and i'm looking forward to welcoming you back next week